Hi everyone and welcome back to Series 2 of Espresso Briefing, the business book club for the perennially time poor. If you're an executive or an HR leader or a professional whose appetite for learning about culture and performance is sadly outweighed by your lack of free time, then this is the place for you. This isn't a book review, it's more of a chance to create a rich conversation with leaders and deep thinkers that we admire. They bring us their favourite books, we connect the book's insights to their and our own experience, and you get ideas to transform your career and your organisation. So if that sounds like a rich brew to you, do keep listening. So, willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to yet a another episode of Series 2. We decided Series 2, so Series 2 it is, British and old school, of Espresso Briefing. James, how are you doing today? Very well, David, very well. Excellent. And I'm pleased to say that uh, the sun always shines, not just on TV, but also on Espresso Briefing. It's a beautiful day and a beautiful time to have the wonderful Robert Conlon with us today. Hey, Robert, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. It's not sunny here, though. Well, it is. Just notice it's just not sunny. Oh, excellent, there you are. So it's breaking out in uh, Northern Ireland, which is where Robert is. And Robert is the head of leadership for Alpha Training, which is a fantastic place to be because Robert's thoughts on leadership, both in terms of being a leadership consultant, a trainer, thought leader, a researcher, are profound. And I know this because I've been working with him on and off for the last 20 years. So I'm really interested to delve into this book that you've brought us today, Robert, which is by Brené Brown. And this is an interesting one, uh, holding it up for the jury. This is an interesting one because I've heard her name referenced by so many people, and I'm afraid to say I've never actually read anything by her. So this is a wonderful opportunity. James, I know you're pretty familiar with her. Yes, yeah, no, I like her a lot. She's um, she's uh, very authentic. She talks about things that we talk about um, dare I say more eloquently than we do. Um, and she's, I just like the stuff that she's putting into the business world. Right. Okay, great. And this book is Dare to Lead by, to give her her proper name, I believe, Dr. Brenny Brown. So Robert, what was it that specifically interests you about this book? Um, I think try to put a structured approach to things such as curiosity and vulnerability um, and how empathy and connection works is something I find really interesting. Um, as you know, David, one of the key things I work with is uh, relationship managers in banking and uh, the whole idea of how can they connect with another human being, how can they actually really get under what that person is saying rather than just being a kind of, so you want this, you know, they really understand why they want it um, or what caused them to want it. Um, and so I got very interested in this. And there's one particular chapter that I got really interested in it's because of those areas. Um, but, but it's that idea of, of she talks a lot about the power of vulnerability um, and how you use vulnerability in the leadership position. And I think it's really interesting because the challenge around vulnerability is that if, if we use it in the, in the wrong circumstances, we can let people in, um, which may not be good for us in, in certain circumstances. So she talks about how you can use vulnerability to improve your leadership. And she comes up with these terms called brave leadership, the power of being courageous. Um, funnily enough, her start of being courageous is not being strong and having something we call the armour, but it actually starts with vulnerability. So that's why I found it very, very interesting. Well, I'd be really fascinated by that piece because I think about vulnerability, which is 
a thought, a concept that is very often bandied about. And the idea that there can be this sort of controlled vulnerability, I find to be a bit of an oxymoron. I understand the idea that if you are vulnerable in a situation where the people around you are looking to take advantage of that for nefarious means, can, can have you know, unintended and, and unpleasant outcomes. And yet isn't vulnerability exactly about having the trust to let people in whatever the situation, knowing that you have enough of a boundary around you to prevent there being anything malign happening. So I'm interested to see if you can sort of productize or mechanize vulnerability almost. James, what's your thoughts about, before we get into it, obviously, what's your thoughts about the importance of vulnerability in a leadership position? I think, so as Robert was talking about um, why he likes this book and why he likes Dr. Brené Brown, um, something else that I thought of came up. I like like how undeniable she makes it. She makes it very practical, very skills-based rather than talking about these broad concepts. I think she's very good at that. What I like, (laughs) vulnerability is a word that you very quickly, if you're in a a particular boardroom, well, it becomes it's it's too human a word, but I I just see it as fundamental. If we talk leadership specifically, a leadership leadership's currency is relationships. People have got to want to be led by you if you're going to lead them. The title doesn't do it on its own, and so they can't connect with you if you're not real. And to me, vulnerability is being real, um, and and opening yourself up to the fact that you're not perfect. Um, which we knew already, but welcome to the party, right? And being intentional about that. And so controlled, I can see where controlled vulnerability might trip us up. Because, well, wait, wait, how does, to me, it's about being intentional with it. It's about being, deploying it to the right amount in the right way. And leadership's all about balance. So you can't be too much. And it's that dichotomy of leadership that we've talked about a lot. You can't be too, um, you can't be too much of a mess, but you can't be too steely either. You can't be too confident, but not confident enough. It's that balance. It's always a balance. It's never going to be perfect. And so vulnerability to me is the starting point of establishing strong relationships with those whom you lead so that they want to be led by you. Because if they don't want to be led by you, it's not going to happen. And I think vulnerability is the main um, skill set required to create that. Hmm. I think there's lots, <laughs> there's lots for debate in all of that, which is why it makes it a wonderful subject. And I'm sure we'll get to it. So, Robert, you picked out the first theme, which you identified as brave work. Tell us more about that. So, um, in, as part of her research, she found that 80% um, believe of leaders that she interviewed that courage is an observable behaviour. Okay, so that you, it's a skill to go back to what James done. You could become more courageous, okay, and skilled. When asked what defined courage as a leader, they couldn't think of observable behaviors. So I just want to go back again. So, when, what they could identify though was observable behaviors that stopped you being courageous, that defined lack of courage. Okay. So, so it's easier for sometimes for us to think. I recently did this at a, a leadership session where we asked people to talk about accountability and come up with people or famous people or whatever who showed accountability. It was really difficult, but they could all come up with ideas of unaccountability. Okay, so it was actually a lot easier to go to the pejorative rather than rather than what they were thinking. So, so, so her key, kind of key thing is is how do we become more courageous as a leader? 
And I'm just going to quote something if that's okay for a moment, because I think this is fabulous what she says here. She talks about something called rumbling. It's her, it's her kind of thing. How do we rumble? And it, she's got a great discussion. This is a leader going into vulnerability in order to identify a problem or to help solve a problem. Okay? She calls rumbling this. It is a discussion, conversational meeting, defined by commitment to lean into vulnerability. I quite like that, leaning in. Um, it's not necessarily I go in and I I'm completely expose everything and tell everyone about myself. I lean into it. This is it's got to be done at a, a, a area of rapport um, with the people around you. To stay curious and generous, stick with the messy middle of problem identification and solving. So those are the three key things I took from there. Was that vulnerability? So what does it mean to make us vulnerable? Well, it's not to pretend we've got it all sorted. It's to have the armor or to go behind the armor. She talks about the art. So she goes, the great enemy of vulnerability is the ego. Okay, so the great enemy, because we don't want to admit, you know, we want to say that we're strong. We want to say that we do these things. Um, and her thing is, is vulnerability is also aligned with the, the values of curiosity and generosity. So I just thought that was quite a nice one, this idea of rumbling, and that's kind of stayed with me. I, I mean, that, I like that, because that, that um, to me, that's that intentionality, that leaning in. I like the leaning in part, because it is by degrees. You don't go in too... If you go in too... If you go back to my point as a leader, if you go in too... We'll use the word vulnerable, whatever that conjures. And I, like, I think it's really interesting that she said that people could figure out very easily what not vulnerable looks like, but it's hard to define what vulnerable is. And I think that's a good starting point for any coaching work. But it's leading in it's, and, and knowing that it's not, um, it, it doesn't make it more comfortable. It doesn't make it easier. It just makes it more and better, whatever better is. Well, can we, can we lean into defining vulnerability then? Because I think with, with a term like that, it can be so oft used and ill-defined, it becomes nebulous. So for me, in a leadership situation, vulnerability surely has a big essence of admitting I don't know the answers, admitting I am not fully confident about what steps we take next. Perhaps I'm even, you know, doubting myself and my own abilities to manage and deal with and address the situation properly. That's my first take on it. For you two, I mean, Robert, what? How do you actually define vulnerability in a leadership situation? So, I, I would in a leadership situation, I think, it comes down to first with dealing with ambiguity. Um, so, the idea is that we can't call it um, because you know it may be too uncertain, it may be too you know all of those unpredictable. So, vulnerability is allowing to say. So, I'm going to probably talk it from a personal perspective. When I was a trainer 20 years ago, I would allow myself to be a lot less vulnerable because I was less confident. So, you know, if somebody asked me a question, you know, do you remember the trainer park? And you say, great, I've got the answer to that. Let's put it up here on the flip chart and I'll come back to it by the end of the day. I know you always knew the person had forgotten or you were hoping and then you hadn't had to answer it, okay? So, so I would say nowadays, and it comes back to another writer, Robert Cialdini, he talks about the, the six principles of influence, what influences people. And one of the things he talks about is you get more authority from admitting non-core weaknesses. Okay, so you get more authority from admitting non-core weaknesses. So when I so look, I think vulnerability, if I walked in as a trainer and I said, guys, you know, I've been asked here to teach sales today, but I'm gonna be honest, guys, I don't really know much about it. I don't think that's gonna help that situation. It's gonna help inspire people because you've now uh, you, this is at your core strength. Okay. 
vulnerability is, I would say, as a trainer, when someone comes up to me and go, I've got this situation and I've never encountered this situation for me as an individual. And I turn around and say, okay, tell me more about it because I've never been involved in that at that moment. So I think vulnerability for me, I think the leaning is correct, is you win a lot more authority and inspiration from people when they feel that you have some doubts, some weaknesses, some areas where you, you're, you're not confident in. I think, and this is up for you, what you guys want to think, I think if you express that vulnerability in core strengths, you've got to be really strong, you know, in the sense as a leader. Because, you know, if, there is a, if we do not know what's going to happen next week, then you've got to be a very authoritative leader to carry the room, you know, with, with that admittance of vulnerability. Um, but that will make you strong. But so it's, 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 how would it it's kind of converse. It's like you get vulnerability to learn. You need vulnerability because only if you've got vulnerability, I don't know, that you can actually become consciously incompetent on the learning curve. But the problem about being consciously incompetent is that, you know, the ego goes down, doesn't it? The confidence goes down because now you're in that vulnerable situation. To become unconsciously competent, you have to, your confidence increases, but you have to have the vulnerability to start the learning process. So it's a kind of weird one in, in two prongs. The more confident I get, the more vulnerable I'm allowed to be. Mm. No, I think that because to me, to me, to me, I'm trying to think how I distill down what I think it is. It's 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 being open to dot dot dot. So and observable to me is the leaders asking questions of the team and really wanting to know the answer. They're not asking leading questions. They're going, hey, what do you think? A vulnerable leader is the one who will seek out the person who is better at the, let's pick customer success because I work with customer success people a lot. A vulnerable leader will be open to the fact that they are not the best at customer success. And they'll ask that person openly, hey, what do you reckon we should do? Knowing, having that confidence, and confidence, to my definition of confidence is I can back myself. It doesn't mean that I'm always right. It doesn't mean that I never feel fear, but confidence is, yeah, I can do that having the confidence that you are the, your job is the leader, you're the traffic cop, you're the structure, you're the orchestra to the band, all that kind of stuff. And so vulnerability is going, because I actually think certainly in the last two years, saying, I don't know what's going to happen next week is, is vulnerable and strong. And if I would follow, I would want to follow that person more than, oh, everything's going to be fine. Well, that just sounds either naive or disconnected. But what, what I'm struck with in listening to this, though, is dealing with leaders and we, you know, the three of us all work to facilitate change in others. I think that's pretty fair. So let's say we've got a leader who has a problem with vulnerability. And I would think it's mostly because they have an implicit trust in their acumen, not an implicit trust in their awareness. See, if you focus in an implicit trust in your awareness, then you are aware of the undercurrents, you're aware that you're not the smartest person in the room in this given situation, or you're aware that you need to coordinate new thoughts from working with the group rather than dictatorially saying, this is what we should do. But I'm interested in what you two think. How many leaders have you met whose real confidence is in their acumen? i.e. their ability to know stuff, to be expert. And if, if the majority is in that space, then it's going to be a big shift to get them to release that trust in their ability and move to a more nuanced, ambiguous place. I mean, Robert, what's your thoughts about that? 
How you yeah, can work with those kind of leaders? Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm going to be probably jumping into some other things as I think about this. Is that the two the biggest problem in learning is the established ego? Okay, so I'm I'm I don't need to learn. I've got my acumen. I know what I'm doing. I've been very successful. Um, and the problem is then, okay, is how do you help someone? And but it's another side to it. When somebody is also feeling um, very embarrassed. Um, so I'm going to go back to a guy called Chris Agrigas just to bring in another sort of writer or thinker onto this. And he talks about defensiveness on an individual level. Okay. So the problem is if I go into a leader and I say, you need to, you don't show much vulnerability, I've immediately judged that person. You know, they're, they're going to clam up, they're going to get defensive because I, I've already started off by telling you probably something deep down you're aware of. That's the worst type of embarrassment. Do you know what I mean? When everyone else can see it and we can't. <laughs> um, I always call it, it's a bit like having your flies undone. There's nothing worse than that, you know, because everyone can see your flies are undone, um, but you can't. And it's, you, hopefully people tell you quite quickly or even gets worse. Um, so, so the kind of th- key thing is, is that what we, we don't want to, help, we're trying to help change people. We don't want to spark that emotional defensiveness, which we all have. Everybody on this call has that. Um, and calling Chris Greg is two things. <laughs> it goes down to my risk. Number one, why do you get defensive? Because your vulnerability allows you open to attack. You immediately feel you know, naked in, in, in the place you are. You, 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 you know, so in a highly political atmosphere, in, a, in an area where there isn't huge amounts of trust, you're not going to press that vulnerability button, are you? Because you, you, that's going to lead you open to criticism. And yet that's the environment in which vulnerability is probably going to be needed. Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to make progress in that environment. And the two thing is, the second thing is, Grigius says, if it causes you, and, and Brené Brown goes deeper into it, and it's something we might want to dive into, uh, Chris Grigius talks about embarrassment. We don't like embarrassment. Okay? Uh, Brené Brown has done a lot of work. We don't like shame. That's her big thing. Okay, If it makes us feel ashamed um, of what we've done, it's some cost effect. As you see, I mean, all of this comes in here, what we've done. So the key thing is working into a, and I'm thinking from my own experience here, working into a highly political atmosphere where there is some level of perceived um, malevolence, you know, where you feel that people may not have your best interests at heart, walking into that situation where, yes, unless people get their vulnerability out there, trying to turn that team around is very, very challenging because who's going to be brave? <laughs> you know, and that's, that's the kind of key thing. It's interesting. I've... While you were talking about that, I was thinking about a specific situation of working with a leadership team in a financial services institution. And I use the word institution very advisedly. And the the CEO comes from a very traditionalist background. Uh, That particular person was not given to much self-introspection, it seemed, and was quite doctrinaire about the way things should be done. And there was very little vulnerability in that leadership team, which numbered about 12 people, nine of whom were male, three female, and classically white, middle-aged, middle-class. There was a big issue around the fact that conflict was just not allowed. So conflict was not allowed in this leadership team, which meant that nobody really said what they felt. And decisions were sort of made in the absence of that creative conflict. And therefore, there was a lot of stasis and a lot of siloed behaviour in the organisation. And so we did a day on looking at different aspects of communication, communication styles, preferences, et cetera, et cetera. 
And we eventually got around to the conflict conversation. And it was a difficult conversation for the room to have, clearly. And the group, the whole group got split up into, I think, trios. And they started to have some conversations about their feelings around conflict and trios and the need for it in this leadership team and what the absence of conflict was actually doing in terms of impairing their decision making. And I overheard the CEO just had the first moment of self-reflection. And he said, it's an interesting one, this one. We didn't really do conflict in my family. I remember a friend coming over and saying, uh, saying, you know, you're, you're really polite in your family. And when I went over to his house, they were just, you know, it's all laid out there. He said, yeah, yeah, maybe I don't have much of a family history of conflict. Maybe I find it really, really difficult. Now, I thought that was an absolute window into a really important conversation because clearly his degree of uncertainty and dislike of conflict was dampening everybody else's. But due to my own vulnerability, I thought, I haven't built a relationship with him yet when I can go deeper into this. And I didn't, and then the moment was lost. So I'd be really interested in that situation for the two of you. You've overheard the CEO talking about it, showing a degree of vulnerability and accessing what was actually blocking him going further with this. James, what would you have done in that situation? Given the fact it's the very first workshop yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd like to think I'd I'd go. Oh, so let's talk more about that. I probably wouldn't, because like you, I'd have been. It would have that would have been um, that would have taken some uh, some guts. But I think uh, that to me is vulnerability. I think he and and if you're starting, you've got to start from where they are. It's a practiced thing, because like Robert said, when I was a, a sales trainer, I was I was very young. I was dealing with people who had been selling longer than I'd been alive in a lot of situations. And so I was wickedly invulnerable and it had to be my way, which was the wrong choice. And as soon as I started to lean into being more vulnerable, which the word I would use is more human about it, more real, more collaborative and saying, yeah, I'm not sure. How would you do that? That was when I got better. So there I would have, I would have, I would have probably tried to hold the space for him. So I'd have asked him to talk more. Um, and I would have seen what came because it, he would probably have been at the place where he probably would have talked more. Um, it, 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 it's hard though, because if we're going pure form coaching, I wouldn't have said, oh, and so that's probably da da da. But then also we go, it's, I think sometimes it's useful to jump in and go, does that mean this? Um, so I would have tried to, nudge the conversation down that hole because that is to come back to what you, when you had started the, with the question david that to me is awareness not acumen he might be the most not most knowledgeable guy in the room but it doesn't matter if he doesn't know how to have constructive conflict and so that that's that that bit and i think that it, it's it, he was in that place he got to that place and good on him for getting to that place if that's not his um mode yeah, and it was the other interesting thing was actually he wasn't really part of this conversation. They were in these small groups, and I just happened to walk past and overhear him saying it at that point. So actually, that I, I had a it wasn't the same sort of thing where oh this might be me. It wasn't the top guy, but I, I did a workshop last week, and um, one of the people in there we were talking about prioritization and how and and what became very clear to them very quickly was oh well we all have different priorities. That's not useful. And one person in one of the small groups that I ever heard said, we're never on the same page. 
And so I remembered it. When we all came back, I went, hey, you said something really, really interesting about being on the same page. Could you, could you share it again? So I might have bookmarked it and brought it back for when it was kind of the, the official bit. Um, but I would have had to have been lucky enough to overhear it. Yeah, and it was, a, it was an interesting judgment call to make because this was the first tiny sliver of awareness in and a very active it, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I thought was, though, though two of his colleagues had heard it. And actually, I was interested to see what they did with it. Anyway, before I talk any more about that, Robert, what, what about you? What, what, what would you have done in those situations? I think it goes back to Brené Brown easing in. Because um, this 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 guy has just said something really profound and a real moment. Now, you, and this is going back maybe to facilitation skills, but um, she also talks about two things here to help you understand your own vulnerability and to learn. She talks about empathy and connection. Okay, so the the, the two things here is probably if I had heard that, and this is being the me on point and uh, you know being really good i probably wanted to go back to him before i went public just to say that was thank you do you know what i mean just to get that point where you know thank you for that to kind of give that reassurance is this something you're comfortable with us coming out to the the, the bigger room because he might at that point i'm not ready to go there do you know what i mean but and he's played such a moment you just don't want to go faster than he's prepared to but at that point you know that's just one of those big moments and it's, it's understanding and i like what james said hold the space you know it's um it's those moments and i've learned this from you david being on your coaching calls it's those moments where you get those highest energy words or there's something low energy about it but there's something profound at that moment you know i think and, and she actually talks about it, the skills here are of paraphrasing the ability to help someone label where that comes from so it might so if i go back to my earlier training days I would have said, John, tell me more about what this was done in your family, thinking because I was going to come with a deep question that was going to make him think. I just think that's inappropriate. I think I mean, she talks a lot about it in the book. She talks it's the ability, and I love this, this term, ability of perspective taking. So she reckons that somebody's going to help you make progress in this journey. Doesn't give you advice, we know that. Doesn't necessarily ask you a deeper question, but maybe says, yeah, that's an interesting thought. Um, I've seen that before, you know, or, or, you know, actually I come from a family, maybe not labeling too much my own story, but helping. Oh, so how do you feel? Or, okay. So John, thanks for saying that. So the family and, and just letting him develop that thought. But I like that idea of what she calls about perspective taking. And I think more and more in, in sales and relationship management where I work, it's the ability to summarize rather than to question that I think is, is really foundational. Because if you do a great summary, you don't even ask a question. The person just responds to it, and it just becomes the next thing. And, and it's hard to do. It's damn hard to do, because to do a good summary, very, very quickly, you've got to read the emotion, read where the person is, and then remodel what they've said to you somehow. And... That to me, if I would say, I would say, if I wanted a good coach or a, a, a good relationship manager, it's that ability to give an insightful summary of my problem or restate it in a way I had not realized it was. Yeah. So to hand it back to that person in a different wrapping so they can absorb it better and marinate on the importance of it. And interestingly, the, the, the choice I made was I didn't want to go deeper into it with him personally. 
because I didn't have that relationship with. I wanted to work with the two people who'd heard it. And actually, that's what I did. I worked with them to say, he's given you this gift. He's opened himself up to you. Now, how can you gently work with him with a pre-established relationship you have with him to build on it and start to unlock why there is such a barrier to conflict, which is holding your your executive team back so much? Which very neatly leads into the second topic, which is therefore the potential for them to have a tough conversation. So tough conversations was the second thing. Robert, tell us all about tough conversations in this book. It goes back to the idea of, of this idea of rumbling. So this idea of, of curiosity, generosity, and vulnerability. So when we go to have a tough conversation, what we don't want to do is if I so that what, what do people hate in, in most situations in life? We hate judgment. We have we what we run away from judgment. We don't want people judging us. It's a, it's and especially if it's a core value. Now, I don't mind, honestly, if you came up to me and you judged the, the, how I painted the house, which knowing you, David, you would. But I, I, I don't mind that because that's not... You know full well that I have absolutely no interior decorating skills whatsoever. That is a judgment I would never make. Okay, well, yeah, all right, we'll come to food, then you make a judgment. But anyway, so, so I, 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 that wouldn't worry me because that's not think close to my values. Yeah, and it's not something that's intrinsic to me. You just don't care about it enough. No, no it's just it's, it's an opinion. Yeah. Sure. Okay. And and the biggest the, the biggest problem about tough conversations, if we're having a tough conversation, a tough conversation, not a conversation about opinion. Essentially, you know, if it's if it's simply I'd like to sit on that desk and I don't care, then we don't have a tough conversation. Where that becomes a tough conversation is where I'm more senior. Why am I not being given that seat? And then you can have tough conversations, even about where someone sits in the office. Do you remember the office? We used to be there years ago. Um, so, so you know, in the sense of that, when it comes down to those those areas where where it may appropriate to people's values, um, and she uses this lovely word, um, she calls it unwanted identities. That's what we find really tough. So, so the idea is, if you come to me, David, and you say that Robert, you know, um, I've been looking at the way you're interacting with the team, and I'm finding that you're not communicating with you know Jennifer. Okay. Now, let's say my identity is I'm fair and equal and I'm diverse and uh, all of these things. And you've identified to me that I'm communicating with Jennifer differently and I'm communicating with, communicating with Paul. That's an unwanted identity, that identity that I may be not the fair person I think I am, I'm not the egalitarian individual I think I am. Then suddenly you're going to hit an armory because that is not an identity that I will necessarily want to deal with. Um, so that's why when we go into those tough conversations, we want to be um, explorative. You know, we want to t- tell me about how you're getting on with everyone on the team. Have you noticed this? We want to go with that naive questioning because we've got to let the person come to an understanding of how it's wanted. But yes, so when it comes, and I just really like that idea. So she calls it two things that come up and I'll, I'll come back to you. She says, number one, she says, what happens is when you give someone an unwanted identity and an unwanted identity is an identity that cuts to the core of my values. Okay, it's not something I, I, I want to see myself as. That creates the master emotion. And that can be shame. Okay, because I feel shamed. Now, what does shame provoke? Well, it could provoke an overwhelming sense of, I'm just such a crap person, which is not learning either. But that will then have a quick hit back, which is what we could, she calls acting out. 
Nobody can stay with that emotion for very long. So guess what? We'll defend it. I'm saying, well, who the hell are you to talk to me like this? So she says that sometimes when you hit those painful points of an individual, because of the pain, and she actually quotes to physical pain on really serious issues, that it can grow. We have a second response, and the response is, who the hell are you to judge me? And so it will have a, it will be a very odd response of, I'm, 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 I'm a person doesn't deserve stuff, to I'm a person who tells you, you don't have the right to tell me I don't deserve stuff. Does that make sense? And, and she talks about that. Yeah, completely. Because I think it links back to, to our episode with Simon Jaffrey Reed when we were talking about the, the, the three-level response to being given challenging feedback, which is screw you, I suck, how do we fix this? And how do you get to how do we fix this? So, I mean, with that theme of courageous conversations, a leader needs to have them with their peers. Uh, and yet, when they are high stakes, they are going to you know, give this unwanted identity, this, um, this picture of the other person that doesn't sit with their prescribed image of themselves. So, James, what, what's your thoughts about that in terms of giving, having these courageous conversations with people when you're going to give them deconstruction their behavior that will be at conflict with their preconceived image of themselves what do you think the important things to do are that overcome that that problem that robert's talking about that schism yeah i think i think it my my starting point with all of this stuff is starting with the self because when i saw tough conversations i was thinking about I wasn't necessarily thinking about just feedback or just giving, saying something that will that will upset the person. I was thinking about, and I, I workshop this particularly with leaders: is well, what's a tough conversation? Because my guess is some of us have similar definitions, but some of us have different ones. So in the sales context, um, if I say tough conversation, people are usually going to say conversations about money. Maybe it used to be tougher for me. It's now less tough. So that's a perspective shift before I've even had a conversation with the other person. Then you then you can get into what kinds of people are you having the conversation with? If I'm having a conversation that reminds me of my dad, that might be different than someone who reminds me of my mum or whatever. So it's the first, it's the, all right, let's get clear on why is this tough for you? It could be, I might lose my job because he's my boss or she's my boss. I'm worried about that. And so now you've got a cultural trust problem. So let's get clear on that. But then I think, and this was a turning point for me in my own um, pointing out of behaviors and, and delivering uh, observations that I feel might upset someone is, why are you doing it? And I mean, really, why? And, and, and then within that, what, do you, what happens if you don't do it? Now, we're paid to give um, uncomfortable feedback. Um, and if we don't do it, the person won't improve. Uh, but an example outside of that is I have a friend who runs a business um, and we have a mutual acquaintance who also runs a business um, that mutual friend's business is not doing as well as it should be because that mutual friends or that mutual acquaintance's business is not as good as the person who founded it he is a great practitioner of what he does and people buy him but they don't get him and so that is costing him and my friend has started to scale up his business and he's starting to have the same problem and so I, most people want to tell him. Most people, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I did tell him because I don't want him to have that same problem. Now, we had the shared context of, so I could shorthand it and go, listen, dude, you're going the same way as the other thing. He could have got really upset by that. He didn't, but 
it, it was how it was why it didn't feel comfortable for me to do it. it would have been easier for me to just get on with my day but it's the motivation behind pointing out that uncomfortable thing so to go back to your example david the motivation for the people the two direct reports to the ceo would have been look we have a chance to change the culture of tough conversations in the company and thereby avoid all of the silo thinking that is frankly why you hired david in the first place is that enough for them to go have it? Because it might not counteract their fear of, well, he, this, this guy doesn't know how to do conflict, so he might either just sideline me or something else or something else. But I, I get clear with people about, all right, why is it a tough conversation for you to have? And what's interesting with leaders, particularly first time and middle, is they don't like conversations where they feel like they are the um, delivering the bad, delivering bad news, but even on behalf of the company, they feel like the messenger. They feel like they're going to be shot. I go, all right, well, you're not the one making the decision. You're just the messenger, so let's talk about that. And then it's about how you do it. It's about keeping, having some clarity around how you're going to do it in a way that feels authentic to you, feels real to you. Those kinds of ways of getting clear about how and why the conversation is tough usually lead to better conversations because there's less, it's not no emotion. We don't want no emotion, but there's less unwanted and over-the-top emotion and it's, there's less um, tension in it. The other thing I was thinking about was, um, it was it was put to me slightly differently, but similarly, um, I like the un, unwanted identity. It's in a book, The Four Agreements, by Dom, Dom Miguel Ruiz, I think. The second agreement is don't take things personally, and the summary of it is you only really pick up the things that you fear to be true. So if it's feedback about something I know is not true, like no to my core, I'm like, oh, okay. But if it's something I fear might be true, that's usually when I take it personally. And that's been that's been useful for me in my own trying to not take things so personally. Journey it is all right. Well, which bit of this do I fear that is true? I appreciate that, and I also think equally you're able to do that with a level of self awareness. I think, Robert, what I'm interested in is if you were going to apply Brené Brown's ideas in an organisation that didn't have a, a, a culture of trust, there was very warring that was political in the negative sense. And I don't know if any particular organisations you might have worked with, Robert, come to mind when I say that. But how do you how do you instil her ideas in an organisation that is not particularly well developed in its culture in being able to cope with courageous conversations? Yeah, I think that's really... I'm just trying to think as both my own experience and also as an outside facilitator in those situations. Uh, I'm going to go right down to the very micro on what I would need to do first. Um, first, you, you don't want to start that vulnerability in public straight away because you want to lean in. Um, so I think what you're going to need to do in that sort of situation is do what we've all done, but you know, you'd go around and you you take the temperature of people in there and you find out what's going on on an individual basis because vulnerability is easier to reveal in a space which is private then it is, again, going to your CEO, that moment of lucidity and, and, and saying that, that's, you've done, he's done a great job, okay? You facilitate, he's done a great job getting that. That's quite hard to do in a public space. Um, so I'd want, I'd want to do it in a place where people felt, because if people don't feel trust, and trust is, is an emotion, you, you can't measure it. You know, I, I know you've seen the trust quote from Charlie Green, the trusted advisor. Uh, yeah, you know, so I mean, you know, was it credibility plus reliability plus um, intimacy divided by self orientation? Now, only an ex sort of McKinsey guy could come up with a, or Boston consulting group with a trust equation. Um, but that that that's that that's put around. But so so I'm going to ask that question because I don't know. Can you if 
if you've got a love, that level of distrust, so to take your example, Dave, I'm just thinking of situations I, I, I've also been in, where you believe there's perceived malevolence by other people in that group. I don't know how someone like us could walk into that and repair things. I'm interested because I, I don't have the answer. I, I think because if it's malevolence, that's I've been in some teams where there's that, where there's literally they'll they'll stab you in the side if they get half a chance. And then there's because then there's the more subtle and probably more um it, it's not malevolence, it's just loads of individuals, right? And so one one thing I've done that and I've had that, I've I've done some work with the with the larger team is I've the first thing I did was just point out that they're not able to say anything negative that's real. Um they'll do the shit sandwich thing. Um but the reverse, they'll go, oh, I think you're amazing. And then we could do better there. And then you're also amazing. So, all right, but you didn't actually say anything bad. So I'd like, I kind of forced them to do it. But with the malevolence thing, to be honest, I don't know if this is the right way culturally, but I was running programs that had a start and an end. I just kept them separate. It was a sales team. I just didn't, I ran it as six separate programs because culture's hard to change. Well, we're talking about being an external facilitator. And I think if we, if we, looked at somebody coming as an internal person yeah how they would deal with this and i mean it could be any it could be any executives but let's i'm just linking it back to our episode with tony bainbridge and i'm just thinking about certainly how the the hr how the hr director the chief people officer who may nominally be the most suitable candidate for having these conversations and i'm just thinking about what Tony said in our podcast with him, which was that always to leave that great Mike final line, I owe you the truth. And then to have a conversation about what does winning really mean to us? And in order to win, what cultural structure do we need? What commercial structure do we need? And then saying, okay, we need a, we need a cultural structure, a commercial structure in of itself won't do it. We need a cultural structure to help us win. And I owe you the truth to say we do not have the cultural structure at the moment, which is still third-partied, still objective. It's not talking about me and you, it's talking about the culture. To then lead into saying, okay, and what do I think our individual contributions to this culture are, and then how could we change them? That so that I'm I'm sort of thinking off the top of my head, which is always risky. But hey, we're only recording this. Um, I think the I think so. It's coming back to the leader um, who is the cultural champion because they've got to, they've got to practice it. So so first it would be all right. We don't have the cultural structure, but we want it. So part of the cultural structure has to be values. What are the behaviours that we hold most dear? And so let's pick one of we tell the uncomfortable truth. What does that mean? When do we do it? Because some people just don't know how to do it um, to your CEO um, client. It, it just didn't grow up with it. A lot of us didn't grow up with healthy ways of having conflict. And so it's got to be, there's the willingness and the capacity part. So let's deal with the capacity. The willingness is a slower burn, but let's get clear on what we want because we know what we don't want. That's easy to define. We, we want what we want. So there's the leaders. They then have to live that, live by example, have that integrity. But then also I'd be looking for the unofficial cultural champions. And by that, I mean the ones who um, live the existing unintentional culture, who are the ones that who who sort of make it okay to not tell the uncomfortable. Yeah, the cultural sort of, architects, leaders. Yeah, and so then at the, at the extreme, you get rid of them or you work with them. Those are the, those are the ones that I'd bring in the, 
the coaches and the and the and the trainers go, all right, dude, like whether you ask for it or not, you are one of the people that people look to in the company. What does that do for you? And then they go, oh, well, it's not my blah, blah. Um, by the way, if they've made it through the coaching door, they're at least vaguely open to vulnerability. Um, so so we get them there. Um, and then if they're not, then all of the work is getting them to a place of um conscious incompetence, right? To get, oh yeah, actually. And then and then you need another set of sessions. If it's not, we could get a bit further into it. So it's it's kind of a two-pronged approach. It's going, okay, overall, this is our structure, this is what we value, these are the activities we value. One of the activities is truth telling. This is how you do it. And then we get selective with the individuals. The leaders have got to live it. Unofficial leaders, the the, the, um, the biggest influencers, you've got a responsibility here. I'm going to help you with learning how to roll with that, but you do need to roll with that better and more intentionally than you're doing. And I mean, I don't know, David or, and Robert, you tell me, pick a number, but this is a process of years, right? Well, it's not going to happen quickly. And I mean, just, just in that, Robert, I'm thinking what your thoughts are. I mean, do you think this major cultural change can happen without the entire executive team being on board with it? I, I think it's got to be from the leader down. But it's, if, if, if the, and I'm getting Luke thinking my examples, but if the leader is not bought in to this kind of brave, courageous leadership, brave conversations, whatever you want to say, the leader is not doing that and acting it, be very very hard for the rest of the team to do it because you 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 know disarmory she talks about you build it up to protect yourself if i don't believe the leader is building up, i could do it on an individual basis there's no doubt about it but you know until we have the leader coming in and showing that they're going through that process then i think it's very difficult the one area i think you can work on and in my experience is when once people you've empathized with people's personal values, they can start to reduce the armory. So if I if I can just give you a very quick example from my world. So I, I often have to go and teach um, private bankers who have been working, a bit like James was saying, working their trade 25, 30 years, extremely intelligent people, very, very smart. Um, and then I suddenly walk in there and they've they don't see themselves as salespeople. Very important. They don't seem they seem sort of advisors helping out people. Now, if I walk in there and I say, guys, this is how you're going to learn selling. This is this technique to do. This is how you close a deal. This is how you do your product pitch. Now, what what's happened here? Okay, that armory is just boom, 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 comes out totally. They've had spent thirty years dealing with clients' divorces, child being children being born, people getting diseases, all of these sorts of stuff that they've had to work with. And suddenly, I tell them you're a salesperson. Now, the armory is absolutely in full effect now. So what I've got to do is if I can relate, empathize, and connect. That's her two key things. Empathize. Empathize is I see that this is what you do. Do you know what I mean? Connect. I think it would be inappropriate for me to tell you how to teach you how to sell because that doesn't define the nature of your role. Then I get acceptance. People open up and we, we have a we have a good session. But she does say this the way you get through that armory is empathy and connection empathy is you know not sympathy it's not taking on somebody else's problems but it's seeing that problem um and then connection um sometimes she says it's the ability to articulate as we said that emotion that that person's going through but i do think it's empathy and connection and i just thought this piece i'm just going to leave you with this and i'll hand back to you is this she there's two quotes i just want to give you from it she says you've got to give people a way out with dignity 
So, you know, they've got, they're not going to withdraw from their armor. It's a bit like this, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to go until you give me a good way out. So, you know, with that person who has to, you've got to help people concede easily. If we make the concession too hard for people, then it's not going to get through the armory. So they're not going to get vulnerable. And the second thing, which I thought, which she says really well, and she talks about how we talk about these problems. Okay? And, and what she says is how important it is to have a boundary. She says, don't fixate, don't ruminate, don't get stuck. So, and you guys are not, my, my background is not as a, as a coach, but I think that's really important in why would I go to a coach or why would I go to someone is because it's a structured guided conversation. It can't just be me down the pub talking to my mate, okay? Because the problem when I'm down the pub talking to my mate is I fixate, I ruminate, I get stuck, okay? What I need from another individual in this situation is somebody who's going to help empathize with me, help connect with me, and then help me move through that process. So I speak, that's the interesting bit is if I was wanting a coach, that's what I'm going to need from that person. And not necessarily a coach, as you said, the HR director, they've got to have that ability to structure and guide that combination so the person can move through the emotion. Yeah, really salient points there. Um, the, the third theme is whole hearts. So tell us about whole hearts, Robert. Well, it, this is quite a... a, 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 a People talk a lot about this. You know, you bring your real self to work that day. You know, you do, you you come in and you, you give your passion. And the, the key thing that really said to me, and it was um, when she talks about whole hearts, is the ability to listen with the same passion as you wish to be heard. So the ability to listen with the same passion as you wish to be heard. Okay, that's not easy. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. You know, I've also spoken to David about this. Why did I stay as a trainer and didn't move into the coaching business is because I find it emotionally draining. Okay, you know, sitting down there with an individual while they talk about their issues because of the level of attention you've got to give. Does that make sense? You know, I, was, I was watching this, something on LinkedIn Learning, and it was this um, psychotherapist. And they asked, when you're with a client, where are you? He says, 96% of my attention is on the client and 4% is on my right leg on the floor. Okay, So he was being himself and grounded, still knowing he was there, if you see what I'm saying, you know, um, but the rest of it was over there. Okay, um, And so I think when, I, when it's whole hearts is, and so it was just, this doctor once said to me, he was talking about somebody who was depressed, and he said to me, you know, never pretend to help if you can't. You know, it'd be better to say, look, you know, this is, I can't help, you know, than to, you know, overpromise and, and not help. If you're going to help, you have to help. Okay. So whole hearts is, is that ability to absolutely bring the emotional part of your brain, not just the logical part of your brain, into your connections with people and, and in how we connect. To listen with the same degree of passion as you would want when you talk. If you're going to be a coach, then that is a prerequisite. But I suppose, James, I'm interested in how we help people who don't have a natural proclivity for that to do it, because you and I are going to implicitly believe in the necessity of doing that. But how do we help people who don't have a natural inclination to do that, to do exactly that? What I've heard is, the way I'm thinking about it is active listening, right, is that it's being fully focused on 
the other person. I find I f- I find the the um, the use of passion tricky here because passion is by definition wild, untamable, fickle. Um, I prefer disciplined. So I may not feel like listening to my client on a Thursday afternoon, but that's my job. Um, I'm a professional, and so I do it. And I like the I like the um, the focusing on the right leg thing. That's pretty cool for me. It's my it's my um, wedding ring. It's a practice. It's a, it's it's just this is part of my job, and you can get into the zone of it. But it's it's it starts with, and I had someone teach me to do this because I was very bad at it when I went through practical coach training. Is not trying to fix um, and having the answer. Um, and, and, um, David told me that I didn't have the answer and, and I didn't believe him. And eventually I did believe him, but it's that, I think the first thing is, again, it's, it's what not to do. It's all right. So just, just, just count to five before you try and jump in and let them carry on. And it's usually silence, which is where people jump in. That's usually people's, um, invitation to carry on their own conversation. Um, so, all right, resist that. And that's where literally one, two, three which is an eternity if you want to jump in with the answer and that and then five gets easy so you do 10 but it's the it's the knowing that it's important it's the seeing that where i'd help them david is i'd help them just to understand the import the, the the just the impact of it the profound impact of not talking and just listening um and you have to see it to believe it but so i, I just tell them to all right take it on take it on faith just don't speak for this next bit and listen and see what happens and the best sessions i've ever done is where i remember david's teaching and and just say you don't have the answer don't jump in and and i don't and they become the best sessions um it's it's the it's understanding why i think people i think people forget why it's important they they intuitively or they instinctively or they're told listening's good and they go yeah cool but i know the answer and we're short on time so let me just tell him and we'll we can be on our way. Well, there's there's two things here I think that are really really important as a summary of what you said is curiosity, and then you said discipline. I think I mean I I might have said commitment, but discipline. You know they're pretty much the same thing because I'm just when I'm listening to all of this. So Robert said 96% on this and 4% on your leg, and I'm straight away thinking, oh, that's really mathematically accurate. But of course, that's not really important for the conversation. You then gave a definition of passion, James, uh, and said, "Yeah, but a passion is, of course, by is by definition wild and untamable." Thinking that's not my definition of it at all. And then thinking, "Oh, that's a really interesting thing. I want to have a conversation with James about what his definition of passion is. Where does that come from?" And yet, that is not specifically germane to the conversation. So if I'm going to be curious in what you've both said, and I'm going to have a commitment to what seems to be important, because you've told me it's important, not what I think is important, I've got to let all of my stuff go, the little things that I want to pick up on. And I want to say, okay, so it's about listening with a degree, you know, whole hearts, as I understand it, is listening with that high degree of curiosity and commitment to the other person's interests, needs, wants, desires, fears, et cetera, et cetera. So I am struck by this, Robert. You I mean, you call yourself, you know, you say you're, you're a trader but not a coach. But as somebody who's got a, a deep and storied career in sales, having that degree of curiosity about somebody else's need, somebody else's pain is really important. And you, you clearly have that. So why would that not 
translate to every other part of your life when you're listening? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think, um, as far as we were going through it, I, I love, I was, I was, I'm going to refer back to something that James said as well and, and something you took on. So the first thing about, I love the flow moments of a deep conversation. You know, when you're, you're in that moment, and you're absolutely right, James, it is an application. It's not simply something that happens. It, it, there is a discipline to it because you've got to get yourself in the right state beforehand. You've got to be in the mode. Because to be honest, you do want to just tell someone the answer, especially when you've got the answer in the first five minutes. Do, do you know what I mean? It's horrible. Like you Guys, you just need to train your people in this course. It's really straightforward. Um, and and you, you, you want to do that. But then you, I've got to keep reminding myself. And I suppose, that David, I probably coach, but in a very specific area, which is around sales, not necessarily around behavior. It is behavioral change, but it may not be getting into what you guys do around kind of personal change um, and, and about that level. And so I'm like, No, but you're still making a shift, aren't you, between it's all on me to transmit the answer to it's on me to listen carefully and and not be too suggestive. And because you have over your career done that, I'm just interested in what made the shift for you. Because for, for anybody listening to this who's in a similar place and wants to take on this concept of whole heart, this yeah. might be really useful. So what okay. has it made you the shift? Then I'm going to give you a very real example. It may not be popular with everyone, but I... But I Many years ago at a leading bank, I had to deliver a sales course, which now makes me cringe um, that I actually ever delivered this. It was horrible, um, kind of NLP-inspired, look at their eyes, look where they're going. They've just turned that way, mirror them. I don't know, copy as they walk out of the branch, all of this terrible stuff. And I was teaching professionals this, okay? And of course, they hated it. And I was I was doing it. And I, I suddenly realized that, there are, there are not enough tactics in the world that, that replace sincerity. You know, you can do every eye matching, I've got to wear the same tie as you, all of this sort of stuff. But finally, what do human beings want in a conversation around their finances is they finally want sincerity. Okay, now... I believe that there are ways, disciplined ways, you can convey sincerity, but you've got it's got to be the first process. That's a mindset set. It's not about me trying to change your mind. It's trying to me to listen to experience. So I suppose what David changed for me is starting on this journey where I, you know, I was a young sales trainer working with very defined methodologies. I realized it doesn't matter how good your questioning methodology is if you do not come back to the base principle of sincerity. And that I want to help you. I do have your best interests at heart, even though it's a it's a fiduciary relationship. It's not a, a you know we're not married or something. You know I'm being paid for my services, but it's that idea of what you want to do. So that's what made the shift for me when I realised that so much of what I was kind of teaching, you know, if just put into practice is is tacky, <laughs> you know, because it lacks sort of sincerity. So yeah, so I've seen every sales training methodology around the place, if not done with the basis of you know listening. Um, but, and I, I use the term a lot, the diagnostic, as we always call it, is not for the advisor. We used to think, oh, it's me to learn your needs. You know, oh, yeah, no, you've got that need. But it's really for the client, okay, because it's the client working for it. And so it's once I started to understand that, I started to change my, my views on, on what is a professional advisor. And that's been interactions with you over the years, and in many ways, 
a professional advisor, financial advisor, is not a million miles away from a coach. Um, because you're because when you're at that level of communication, I, I'm talking to you. I, I, for example, I was in one bank. This is a little funny aside. I was at one bank and I was training the lottery winning team, the, the RMs who train all the people who've won the lottery. And the problem is, is that lottery winners, they don't remain rich for very long. Very sadly, unfortunately, they, they tend to spend their money over a few years. And we were having to help those lottery winners take a different course. The problem is, is that it was all about broadcast and data that the RMs were doing, okay, the pro bankers do. What they didn't understand was that for most of these people, there's a hell of a lot of emotional motion packed up in their generosity because they were incredibly generous. Money was going everywhere. And if you don't unpack that, that what's going on that's making them give all their money away, then you're never going to change that behavior. So it's those experiences, um, David, that's really led me to say, actually, I've gone through a process that it's more about how we listen. Um, and questions are great, but only if they're the right questions. Yeah, which I think, you know, you, you might you might say in summary, it's that dictum of coaching, which is it's always the client's agenda. Yes. Well, that seems like a perfect place to finish up. So Dare to Lead by Dr. Brené Brown. Thank you, Robert, because now I feel I understand Brené Brown a little bit more. There it is for the camera. And in terms of for people to learn about more of what you do, Robert, and your organization, presumably they can find you at LinkedIn. Where else? Yeah, alpha and alphadevelopment.com, uh, LinkedIn. Um, we'll be posting quite a new set of like uh, little kind of podcasts, a little bit like this from, from our business. We'll be doing that. And please, you know, connect with me um, and I'd love to talk. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. So that's another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please do like, subscribe. Hey, if you fancy leaving us a review, that would be marvellous. You can listen to us on all the podcast channels. So it just remains for me to say thank you, obviously, always to James. Thank you to Robert. Thanks, James. Thank you to our marvellous producer, Piers. And we will see you soon for another episode.